Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, again, as we gather as your people, we, especially this year, um, we've learned to treasure the simple act of being with your people. We thank you for what you have accomplished for us in our weakness. We thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but that as you have promised to be with us, you have been faithful in being with us even today, whether we are gathered here or elsewhere. And as we look to your word now, Lord, give us ears and a heart to hear the Spirit through the word. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 is what we're going to be particularly focusing on today. And I promise that we will get to that passage in Hebrews. I've wrestled with it all week and the week before. In lots of ways, pleading with God to give me the grace required to be able to proclaim it and not just explain it to you. And I say that very deliberately Because Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 1 through 8, at least in my opinion, may be some of the most contentious and difficult verses in the Bible interpret well within the context of all the Bible. And we probably could easily spend the next 30 minutes or 30 years defending or attacking various theological positions on the security of our salvation. But I don't think that's the point of this passage. We could spend the next 30 minutes or so arguing theology, but entirely missing the weight of the warning that the writer wants us to hear. So instead of leading with the Hebrews passage, we're going to come back to it. I want you just to put your finger or a bookmark there. And I want to bring to mind a well-known passage that Jesus once told. Because I think it will help us to orient our hearts and our souls well to hear the warning that the writer of the book of Hebrews wants to give us. So grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew 13. And we're going to read from verses 3 down to verse 9. Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 to 9. Reading from the Christian Standard Bible this morning, it says this. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, 
some 30 times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. It's a pretty familiar story to lots of people, I imagine. One that doesn't usually cause too many debates or problems for people. And one that we often use when we're thinking about our evangelistic efforts, about sharing the word of God with people and realizing that there's going to be all sorts of people that will hear the word and respond to it in various ways. But Jesus finished by saying, let anyone who has ears listen. And and so when the people who did have ears to hear something more about what Jesus was saying drew closer to find out more, Jesus, what did you mean? This is how Jesus explained the story. So you can go down further in the chapter, Matthew 13 and find verse 18. We're going to pick up where Jesus starts to explain what he meant. I want to read it to you. So he says, so listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And the one sown on rocky ground. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root and is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now the one sown among the thorns. This is one who hears the word, but the worries of this age... And the deceitfulness of wealth choked the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit and yields, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times what was sown. Now, we can learn a lot from Jesus' parable, but one thing is very, very clear. All of these people received the word of God, just as the soil received the seed. But not all produced a crop. Everyone experienced something of God, but not everyone produced a harvest for God. And I think that this helps us grasp the warning that the writer of the book of Hebrews wants us to hear. And not only hear, but understand. So here is the warning from the book of Hebrews. And I've tried to summarize it in a little heading by saying that the false fall away. The warning is that the false Fall away. So let's go back to the book of Hebrews. I want to read just the eight verses from Hebrews chapter 6. They say this Hebrews 6, reading from verse 1. Therefore, good reminder, thank you, about the, the reason why those therefores exist. We're going to come back to that. Therefore, let us. 
leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the power of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because, to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. There's the warning. The false fall away. Now, I think the key to this passage, it is difficult. It, it, it asks a lot of questions of us and forces us to sort of try and grapple with what we know about God, what we know about repentance, what we know about our sin and fruitfulness. But the key to this passage, which is the same for any passage in Scripture, is that we not uproot it from the garden that it's growing in. As soon as we rip it out of its context, well, we can hear it say anything that we want it to say. Anything that we're comfortable with it saying. In other words, if we want the Bible to always agree with our opinion and our preconceived ideas, then let's just read every single passage in isolation from the others. That's not how we read the Bible. We must remember that this passage, Hebrews 6, 1 through 8, This passage sits attached to the rebuke that just preceded it. That's why it says, therefore, all right? It's connected to what the writer has just been saying. And he's just been talking about, remember, milk Christians, immature Christians who have put their confidence in the wrong righteousness and are too lazy to comprehend the message of the sufficiency of Christ. That rebuke and this warning that we're going to look at today both sit within the broader context of the book of Hebrews, which is about how God has revealed himself perfectly to us in Christ Jesus. That Jesus is greater than all that has previously come before him. Even the good religious rituals provided by Moses in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment and the better. That's what the, the context of Hebrews is all about. So let's look closely at the warning that we must remember both hear but also heed. A warning that we must take note of and see if we can perceive what the Spirit of God might be saying to us today through it. So here's the first thing I want you to notice. We'll go back and just focus our attention on the first three verses of chapter 6. Go back and have a look at them. Hebrews 6 verses 1 through 3. 
say this. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundations of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washing, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. I want you to notice that this is about the foundations that we have, which we should build on the foundations that we build on. So last week, we highlighted, didn't we, the need for Christian maturity. And even if you weren't here last week or you missed the feed, if you've been around church, if you've walked as a Christian for some time, that shouldn't be a strange concept for you. The need for Christian maturity. We, re- we talked about the fact that while it is entirely appropriate for babies to drink milk... Maturity means that we move on to a broader and more balanced diet. And the same theme that we looked at last week is just continuing into this warning. The problem with human nature, though, is that we love to draw lines and boxes. And and we love creating tests and conditions, especially as Christians, to test the validity of each other's maturity. So I'm sort of thinking uh, along the lines of the fact that we so often size other people up and we start to think, well, are they as mature as I am? Or, gee, they are acting very immature. And we have all these little ideas and tests and, and things that people must fit in our head. So we, we stop asking are you mature? And we start asking things like, are you the right type of mature? Are you the mature that I want you to be? Are you the mature that I've defined? And what the writer is urging us to do in this passage is just to push on in our faith. To push on. He wants us to grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. You see, for many of us today, for many Christians today, although we're quick to affirm that salvation is by grace alone, we're pretty quick to abandon that idea when it comes to our sanctification. We foolishly think that our growth and your growth, other people's growth, well, it's all up to us. So that while our salvation comes through grace... Our sanctification comes through works. Though to be honest, we rarely apply that test to ourselves and we generally apply it to everybody else. All the other people out there, they're the ones who need to pull their socks up. They're the ones that need to work harder. They're the ones that need to try a bit more, right? We're pretty good at religiously applying that to everybody else and rarely to ourselves. These opening verses of chapter 6, they're not telling us to leave Christ behind. He's not saying leave Jesus behind and go on to growth. As though that Jesus is himself the elementary teaching that gets us through the gates of heaven, but then must be discarded. Once we've got Jesus and our ticket to salvation, that's all we need, right? No. The gospel of Christ's sufficient righteousness is pivotal in your salvation, but it is absolutely needed every day afterwards. We never leave the gospel behind, ever. 
We never leave the hope that we have for our salvation and our security behind. Do you you realize that even when you get to heaven and, and the growth that is in your life is done and you are ushered into the presence of God and you see Jesus face to face, do you know what songs people will be singing in heaven? For eternity, they will be singing songs that say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Even in a thousand years time or 10,000 years time, we will still be reminding each other of the gospel. We will still be saying the only reason that you and I are here is because of the worthiness of the lamb that was slain for us. And we will continually be pointing each other back to the truth, the central truth of the gospel. But here's the problem, and it's the problem that the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to highlight, I think. Too often we take these basic building blocks of faith in Christ as life as a follower of Jesus, and we use them as some type of measuring stick against other people. Instead of seeing them for what they are, they're they're solid foundations that we are meant to build on. We treat them as though they're the walls that keep you know, those other sorts of Christians out. So we create these little rules around the gospel and around Jesus and around life as a Christian and about the future maybe and what we believe about the end times. And we'd, we'd make these little walls and we build them around ourselves and they're to keep all the other Christians out. You know the ones I'm talking about, right? I mean, I know we're all equal in Christ, but... You know, there's other sorts of Christians that are, you know, we don't like to say it, but we think it, they're inferior. Their, their theology isn't as good as ours. Their understanding of Jesus isn't as good as we have. And so we create these little tests and rules and we just live there. And we just say, let's just form ourselves a little group. And the, and the writer gives us three little ways that we do that, these foundational truths that we're meant to build on but not get hung up on and turn into soapboxes. So there are three little couplets, little joined theologies together. They're sort of two, two, and two, and you'll see them there in those verses. He says, repentance from dead works and faith in God. They're the two foundational truths about what we understand about how we believe. Repentance and faith. Now, he's not saying leave them behind like they're no longer important. But he is saying these truths are meant to be built on. These truths are meant to lay a foundation that we grow out of and produce fruit from. So repentance from dead works and faith in God, that's how we believe. The second couplet that we've got there is teaching about ritual washings or baptism and the laying on of hands. That's how we live as Christians. We, we move forward and we live in repentance, in a symbol of repentance, which is about baptism. Man, there's been some arguments about baptism over the years. Christians who have gone and started up their own thing because they didn't agree with each other about baptisms or about laying on of hands, maybe. And whether we should do that or what it symbolizes or what it means. 
The third couplet is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So if the first one is about how we believe, the second one was about how we live, well, the third one is about how we die, our future. What do we believe about how God brings all things together at the end of life? The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Man, if that's something that can cause a fight in a church, start talking about the end times, start talking about what happens at the end of human history and how God's going to work, and that'll cause some good arguments. It has done over the years. Here's what we need to take from these opening verses. It is our responsibility to press on in the Christian life, to build on the foundations of the gospel. It is our responsibility. God is at work. We're going to get to that in a moment. But we must build on the foundation of the gospel in our life. Most of you know that I'm not a huge fan of the message Last week when Tim was here, he was asking me, what did the message say about a passage in Hebrews 5? I said, we'll get to it. It's because I'd already read this week's passage. And I really like the way the message opens up chapter 6. Eugene Peterson, who wrote his uh, version of the Bible, said this. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 from the message. He says, so come on. Let's leave the preschool finger-painting exercises on Christ and get on with the grand work of art. Grow up in Christ. He's pretty blunt. I liked it, though. There's a kind of preschool finger-painting that we can get involved in in church life, arguing about these foundational things, drawing little boundaries around us, putting some people out, including other people in on the basis of those truths. And here the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, you know what, don't be content with preschool finger-painting all your Christian life. There is a grand masterpiece of art that God is wanting to do in your life. So get on with it. Grow up in Christ, he says. Then we get Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3. Just a little tiny verse, but I think it's pivotal. It is the central truth, I think, in this morning. It says, if God permits. If God permits. So he's encouraged us to leave behind those elementary things. Build on them. Don't just stay there for the rest of your life. Don't act like kindergarten Christians, he's saying. Grow up in Christ. And then he says, and we will do this if God permits. We will do this if God permits. Maybe you're still understanding or misunderstanding what I'm trying to say. Maybe you've been conditioned so well by the cultural forces of this present age and the church that we live in, and you're hearing my words, but you're interpreting them as saying, Chris is saying, we need to do more, we need to work harder, and success is for the strong. Because that's what our world says, and so often that's what we can inadvertently believe about the Christian life. That we just need to do more. That we just need to work harder. That success is for the strong Christians. Just in case you thought that your growth was still up to you, the Spirit has inserted this little verse, this beautiful verse, that I think gives us all hope. God gives 
the growth. In 1 Corinthians, Paul was writing a letter to the church in Corinth and he was reprimanding them, rebuking them because a bunch of these Christians, they were starting to form little factional groups in the church. Some of them said, you know what? We think Apollos is the greatest preacher. We love the way he preaches. We love the way he explains the Bible. We are Apollos' people. And there were other people in the church, and they're just like, ah, look, Apollos is all right. But man, Paul, Paul's our guy, right? We're going to identify with Paul. He's the one. If we're going to be Paul's men, Paul wrote them a letter, and he, he sort of tried to set them straight. He did it pretty bluntly. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul reminds them about the way that things work in the church. He says, I planted... So he's talking about himself there, Paul. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gives the growth. Elsewhere, Paul makes it painfully obvious to us. God invites us all to be involved in the process of growth, but none of us can make growth. It's exclusively reserved for God. This truth that while we can plant, while we can water, while we can create healthy environments for growth to take place, the actual growing can only be affected by God's gracious hand. This truth is the key to not getting detoured by the verses that are following. God is the one who makes growth happen. Does it remove all responsibility on us? Do we just sit back and say, well, I became a Christian. I don't know why I'm not growing. God mustn't be doing anything in my life. No. Watering needs to happen. Planting needs to happen. Sowing needs to happen. We can do all of those things. But God is the one who makes growth So here's the heart of the warning and the heavy part of this passage. We need to check the soil in the field of our own hearts now. That's what, that's what I think the writer of Hebrews is driving at. We need to check the soil in our own heart. This is the sobering reality that's painted in the scripture itself. Because in in the midst of any gathering of any church in any age, there are those who look like wheat, but are in fact weeds. The Bible makes that clear. Or to use another metaphor that you'll find in the Bible, there are those that act like sheep, but are in fact goats, or even worse, wolves. It's quite possible that even here, in this gathering, or online even, that there are represented a whole variety of types of soil. Some who have received the seed of the word of God and are producing a harvest of righteousness. Some who have received the word but it's being choked out by a love for the world. Or maybe it's shriveling under the pressure 
Because the roots are shallow. And if you're like me, your very first instinct is to draw up a mental list of all the other people that you know fit this description. And, and right now you might be thinking, gee, I wish that so-and-so was here to hear that. Or I hope that person's listening online. They're probably not. But here's the reality. That warning wasn't for them. That warning was for you. It was for me. We must take this warning seriously. I must take this warning seriously. I mean, you... you have no idea of the darkness that lurks in my heart, as I probably don't of yours. Some of you, if you know me well enough, you may know about some of the filth that's festered there. But trust me, the well of my depravity is deep. So is yours. And I will stand before God to give an account for my life one day, as you will. So we must each hear this warning. We must each take stock. What is growing in the soil of my heart? What is growing in the soil of your heart? So let's just read the last four verses and make just a small comment about them. Hebrews 6, starting from verse 4. And these are sobering words that we need to take seriously this morning. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up for contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those to whom it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it's worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. So dear friends, I am pleading with you this morning. The stakes are too high to play games with God. It might be fun to dress up and play as a child or even to attend a fancy dress party as an adult, but we can't play dress-ups with God. The walk of a disciple is not a masquerade ball where we can slip through the gates of heaven unnoticed. Too many of us are even searching for that perfect filter that we can apply to our life that removes all the blemishes Add a bit of bling to the image. Gain us some more followings. And we struggle to accept that Jesus is simply looking for followers who are willing to come under the light of Christ and humbly own the no filter hashtag for their life. We come with the rags that we're wearing and we're met by a father who is robed And then robes us in the righteousness of Christ. We've got no one to impress. Jesus is impressive enough on our behalf. But if we refuse. 
If in fact we persist with the foolish notion that our own righteousness will be enough. If we dip our ladle at the well of the Spirit's good gifts and we taste God's goodness without ever feasting on Christ himself. If we do all of this and then throw it back in his face. If we push our chair back from the table and walk away from the generosity of the Father, then you are wrenching the hammer from the soldier's hands and you are driving the nails back into Jesus' hands all over again. And so I plead with you again. The stakes are too high to play games with God. The field, the writer says, of your life will be cursed and destroyed. And I can't bring you to repentance. With man, that's impossible. But God, right? But God. Nothing's impossible for him. It is his kindness, Romans 2 says, it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so that's where we must finish this morning. The call of this warning is the call of any biblical warning, and that's for their people who hear it to repent. That's been my prayer this week as I wrestled with God through the text saying, Lord, how do I proclaim this warning? How does a sinner like me proclaim this warning? And his response to me came in the verses of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. It says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. So if the Lord has brought conviction to your heart this morning, then call out to him now. Whether you're here or in your lounge rooms, throw yourself onto the mercy and seek the grace of Jesus. Jesus is enough. He is. Jesus is sufficient. And Jesus is our only hope and plea. So if you know this, both in your head and your heart, then press on to maturity. Our king has promised to never leave us. And the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the the warnings of scripture. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see not all the problems and all the people that need to hear this warning, but that you would give us eyes to see the soil of our own hearts. Lord, humble us before you. Lord, our desire is to find our righteousness in you and you alone and nowhere else. Lord, help us to build our lives securely on the foundation and the truth of the gospel. Help us to grow in grace. And Lord, if I or any of us have been playing games, playing Christian dress up, Lord, will you kindly bring us to repentance so that we might know the truth 
and find our hope only in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, our glorious Saviour. Amen.